Our uh, scripture reading comes from Matthew 1, 1 and 6, and also excerpts from 2 Samuel 11. It's also printed on page 8 of your bulletin. I'm going to read that for us this morning. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. We're going to skip to 2 Samuel 11. But in, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole army, whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent, uh, sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he would be struck down and die. So, jo so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Metro. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're new or visiting, thank you so much for coming. I know it's not easy to come to a new church, but uh, thank you for taking that risk on us. Uh, for the past few weeks, we've been going through a sermon series called The Mothers of Jesus. And in this sermon series, we um, are looking at the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew. And in this genealogy, there's a handful of women in this genealogy. And it's weird, because back in the day, women would never be in genealogies. So each of these sermons, we're zoning in on these women as to see why they were added to this genealogy. Last week, we uh, talked about Ruth, and today we're going to be talking about Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And um, I have three points for us today. We're going to get right into it. First is the power of sin. The second is the consequences of sin. And third is the hope of Christmas. The power of sin. And this, this is going to be the story from David's perspective. Secondly, the consequences of sin. sin. This is going to be the story from Bathsheba's perspective. And lastly, the hope of Christmas is going to be the gospel perspective. Uh, the power of sin. So the story from David's perspective. 
David is one of those biblical characters that everyone at least recognizes, whether you've been attending church for every single week or you haven't been to church in years. The image of David and Goliath is a prominent one, and it's used constantly. You got the big, bad giant versus the underdog. In the unforgettable Super Bowl 52 this past year, our Philadelphia Eagles beat the New England Patriots. Boo! The New England Patriots. And it was said to be a battle between David the Eagles and Goliath the Patriots. But this story actually gives a very incomplete view of who David actually was. David was the runt of his family. He had many older brothers, more capable and handsome than he was. He grew up as a little shepherd boy, so when God told Samuel that he was to be the next king of Israel, out of all the more adequate brothers he was chosen, it was shocking, to say the least. He was a little ruddy boy who had absolutely no visible talents, yet God chose him. We fast forward a little and uh, we witness the battle between David and Goliath, uh, where David slays the mighty giant with his rocks and his sling. Throughout David's whole life, God was preparing David to be the next king. A side note, there's a very popular writer, Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote a book called David and Goliath, and it actually shows why David's victory over Goliath wasn't as unbelievable as it sounds. It's a very good read. If we fast forward a bit more to when he actually becomes king, David is praised as a great warrior, a humble and wise king. And even to this day, he is known to be the greatest king the Jewish people have ever known. He had defeated all the enemies around him. He expanded the kingdom. He reclaimed all the land that was rightfully theirs. And above all, God said that David was a man after his own heart. And God loved him. He even said that David's throne would be established forever. David was the kind of man that all men strive to be. And all the little teenage girls of the, of the time probably had like posters up in their bedrooms of David just looking real fresh. He was the great king of Israel. But now we get to this story. This is one of the darkest events in the history of Israel. Why? Because the people saw their seemingly perfect king commit multiple crimes that not only were evil, but they deserved the death penalty. So let's talk about this story. And it's a perfect Hollywood film. There's drama. There's violence. There's scandal. There's romance. There's a cover-up. It has it all. Actually, they made a film in 1951 and surprisingly got an 80% on Rotten Tomato. That's pretty good. It's probably not accurate, but then, you know, that's Hollywood. The story, that, and, and the time of this story in history was probably at the peak of the prosperity of David's kingdom. Because rather than go off to war like all the other soldiers and in the past battles, he always went to war. The king thought that it wouldn't be necessary for him to go, so he stayed behind. This was his first mistake. So one evening, he couldn't sleep. 
So he got up, he walked around in his roof, and when he was up there, he saw a beautiful woman bathing. And the story emphasizes that she was beautiful. So the king asked his messengers to find out who she was, and one of them said, Is this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elim, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Let's stop right there. David found out from this messenger three things. One, she was married. Two, she was married to Uriah. And three, she was the daughter of Elim. David had a group of soldiers, soldiers that were closest to him. He had, a, he had like a posse. They would repeatedly lay down their lives for David, these soldiers. And they were called David's mighty men. And there were roughly around 37 of them in total. So it's not too many. David knew each of these men by name. Elaim, Bathsheba's father, was one of them. And not only him, Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband was also one of them. So David knew her entire family. He knew exactly who they were. He knew her husband has risked, had risked his life for him repeatedly, yet the story continues on. So David, in his moment of passion and desire, sent messengers to take her and bring her to him, and he slept with her. And then she returned to her house. Sometime after, she sent a messenger to David saying, I am pregnant. And these are the only words of Bathsheba in this story recorded. There was a small detail saying that she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness, and that's referring to a woman's menstrual period. The Bible says seven days after a woman has her period, she has to, she has to ritually cleanse herself. And, you know, it's not secret that I've never had a period, or I'm not going to pretend like I know what I'm talking about about it, but around seven to 14 days after, a woman is very fertile. And all that to say, Bathsheba was pregnant, and it was definitely David's fault. It was David's child. So the cover-up. Why did he have to cover up in the first place? Because if a man and a woman, if they were found to have committed adultery, according to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, they would both be put to death. They'd be stoned to death. So David sent Uriah, sent for Uriah, her husband, to come back home from the heat of battle. And long story short, he was trying to trick Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so that it would look like he impregnated her, not David. Sneaky, sneaky Dave. He's a sneaky man. Uriah, however, did not go back home. He had integrity and character to fight the temptations of his heart. Do you see the contrast between these two men? Uriah's response to David was, my commander and fellow soldiers are out in battle. They're in the heat of battle, sleeping in tents in the open field. How am I supposed to go home and eat a good meal, drink, sleep in a bed, and sleep with my wife? We see a complete flip in character and roles. This was supposed to be the response of the king, the commander-in-chief, yet it was a soldier acting more kingly than this man after his own heart. But the story, it continues on. Because Uriah did not go back to his house to sleep with Bathsheba, 
David had to take more extreme measures. So he sent Uriah back to the battlefield carrying a letter written by the king himself to give to the commanding officer which ordered him to put Uriah in the fiercest battle and draw back from him so that he would die. This dude had the man hand deliver the letter sealing his own death. And his plan was to have Uriah charged into the enemy walls while all his fellow soldiers would retreat and abandon him. That is some dark, dark stuff. So word got back to David that Uriah was killed. And when Bathsheba heard what had happened to her husband, she mourned and lamented for him. And when she was finished, David brought her back into his palace, took her to be his wife, and she bore their child, their son. And uh, part of this story ends by saying, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. But this isn't the end of the whole story. Time had passed, and David, David probably thought that he had gotten away with sleeping with another man's wife, getting her pregnant, killing not only Uriah, but also the soldiers who were killed with him, and trying to lie about the whole thing. He broke half the commandments here. The king of Israel. But sometime later, God sent Nathan the prophet, he sent him to David, and he began telling him a story. There were two men in a certain city. One rich, one poor. And the rich man had all that he could have ever needed and wanted. He had many flocks and herds, but this poor man, he had nothing but one little ewe lamb. And he loved it. It ate from his table, drank from his cup, grew up with his children, played with his children. It was like a daughter to him. One day, a traveler came to visit the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own sheep out of the many he had. So what did he do? He took this one sheep that this poor man had, the only one, and he prepared it for the guest. Even before Nathan asked King David a question, King, David, King David's anger burned, and he said, This man deserves to die. But Nathan responded by saying, you are the man. He's not saying you're the man. He's saying you are that man. The Lord had gave you all that you could ever wanted or needed, and if that wasn't enough, he would have given you even more. Yet you took another man's wife and you had him killed. David responded by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. David was the one who deserved to die. And it's interesting because the rich man in the story, although he did something horrible by the law, he, he actually didn't deserve the death penalty. It was David's conscience that was pricking his heart of his guilt. Then Nathan said, The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. But the child who was born out of this crime, he will die. Although David's life was spared, it came at a cost, but it was not him who paid that cost. Others had to pay that for him. Uriah, through his life. Soldiers who died with Uriah through his life. Bathsheba, scandalous. And now her child was going to be killed. 
this point here. This is actually a huge turning point, this story in David's life, and not for the better. From here, his life was an absolute disaster. His children would kill his other children. His own son would repeatedly try to take his throne and kill him. And the list goes on and on and on. This is a crazy story, even for today's standards. But even in the midst of this evil, David wrote what is known to be the most sincere and complete prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. Here's a small section of it. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That's the story. So what can we learn from David's part of the story? I want us to learn one thing, and that's the power of sin. Sin, has a very, sin is very crafty, and oftentimes it makes us forget that the seeds of this same kind of evil is in all of our hearts. All of us are capable of this kind of evil. In fact, when we, the moment we think that we aren't capable of this, we're actually taking one step closer to actually doing it. David was a man after God's own heart. His whole life up to this point was considered to be morally outstanding, yet it was him who committed this evil. Can you truly say that you're better than David? than King David? And if David can commit an evil like this, how much greater can our evil be? The seeds of evil are in our hearts. A tiny little acorn, if it's left to grow, it grows into a huge oak tree that creates more acorns. You can imagine just the disaster that can happen in your life. It only takes one small seed. In your life, Do you see jealousy? Do you see pride, bitterness, lust, self-centeredness? And the list is just, it can go on forever. Under the right circumstances, do you see what these tiny little seeds can become in your life? This story also shows us that even those who consider themselves to be Christian and born again completely changed are just as capable of this evil, if not more, than someone who would consider them not a Christian at all. One commentator said, Surely David did not arise from his afternoon nap planning to become an adulterer, a conspirator, a murderer, or a hypocrite. Sin rarely shows itself all at once or even as sin at all. The temptation to sin is usually more subtle than that. But once in his grip, one is taken to places one never intended to go and held longer than one ever intended to stay. Just like David, you know, we don't wake up and we're like, hey man, I'm going to commit adultery today. No one says that. But somehow it finds its way into your life. And when it does, it'll take you places that you never wanted to go you're going to look back and say, what happened? However, when we accept that these evils exist in our hearts and that we are capable of even the most atrocious sins, then we will able, be able to live humble lives, constantly repenting of our evils and living under the grace of God. 
This is why we become angry and bitter at our spouses, our coworkers, our friends, our family members. We, when they commit an evil against us, we say, how can you do this to me? And we're essentially saying, I would never do that. I would never do that. However, when we see all that evil in our hearts, we respond radically different. We respond with grace and humility, knowing that we are just as capable of doing those evils and screwing up just like they did. This is the power of sin and the story from David's perspective. This takes us to our second point, the consequences of sin. Story of Bathsheba and her perspective. And this is, this is, a, this is a part of the story that we rarely probably hear. And I'm not going to go through the whole story again, but many of us have probably heard this story before and uh, growing up, and perhaps uh, we were taught that one of the lessons from this story is to dress modestly and act like a godly woman or man. And we come to this conclusion by seeing the evil deeds of Bathsheba. However, is this really the picture we get from this story? A little bit of background of Bathsheba. You know, we aren't told many things about her, but we are told that she is the daughter of a lion and the wife of Uriah. And like I said before, these two men were part of an elite group of soldiers called David's mighty men. If you look elsewhere in the Bible, her grandfather was also one of King David's esteemed counselors who he would converse with before decisions were made. So contrary to popular belief, Bathsheba actually had a very, very good reputation. She was associated with these great men. Another misconception tied to Bathsheba in the story when we picture David looking out and seeing Bathsheba, we picture this woman on the rooftop, completely naked, attempting to seduce the king into sleeping with her. Probably her hair waving, looking straight at David, and she's just like, yes, come to me. That's probably what we're thinking. However, however, this may not have been the reality. First of all, she was not on the rooftop. It was David who was on the rooftop. Our passage says, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. He was the one on the rooftop. And the roof of the king's palace was the highest point in the city of Jerusalem. It was built on the highest plot of land looking over all the city because it was strategically the best location. Secondly, she may have not been completely naked. Back in those times, there were no private bathrooms. They were all communal baths. So women would cover themselves up uh, while washing different parts of their body. They were never really exposed in public, completely exposed to public. Lastly, Bathsheba probably had no idea the king was watching. All the men were off to war, and David should have been in war. That's what she was expecting. She had no intention of seducing the king. But what we do know is that David called for this woman to be brought to him and that he slept with her. And some people place blame upon her, saying that she didn't struggle or resist at all. But back in those days, when the king wants something, there's really not much that you can do to say no. If you rejected the king, you could be put to death for disobedience. So honestly speaking, there wasn't much that she could have done. And as I was going through this passage, you know, I really wrestled with putting any blame on Bathsheba. Was it really her fault? How much did she really deserve? But these things weren't disclosed in the passage. 
However, this passage does convey that Bathsheba was used by the king to satisfy the evil desires of his heart. What did he do? He took her into his house, he slept with her, and then he sent her back home. And he didn't speak to her again until he killed her husband and brought her into his house to marry her. After all, the passage, it ends by saying, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. But as I wrestled with this in the end, you know, it really didn't matter whose fault it was because the consequences of this sin had already occurred. The point isn't the the placement of blame, but it's the result of David's sin. And the result was that because of what David did, Bathsheba became disgraced and cast out. The evil of David was imputed to her. And regardless of fault, she was now the woman who committed adultery with the king. She would be shunned. She was disgraced. And she became the object of judgment from those around her. She was used, disgraced, and broken. And if you look at the story, the narrative portrays her pretty much as such. She was barely even mentioned. She was a casualty of war. And even more, she was the one who paid for the sins of David. Her husband was murdered. And like we said before, Nathan the prophet said to David, The Lord has put away your sins, you shall not die, but the child who was born out of this crime will die. She suffered the death of her child. It's a sad, sad story. But fortunately, her story doesn't end with brokenness, but it ends with hope. Later on in the story, she bore another child, and his name was Solomon. He was also given the name Jedediah by God himself, which means loved by God. And this king, this King Solomon, he became greater and more successful than his father David. And Bathsheba became the queen mother where King Solomon would rise from the throne to greet her and bow down to her as she approached the seat at his right hand, which was the most important and esteemed seat besides the king. So what can we learn from Bathsheba's story? Three quick things. One, sin has a destructive nature not only in in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. The evil in our hearts, when when it's left to itself, it'll ruin not only our lives, but it'll ruin the lives of those around us. And this isn't just for the obvious ones, like murder or adultery or lying. It also applies to the ones that we try so hard to conceal, our pride, our selfishness, our hatred, our lust. And these are just scratching the surface. Eventually, these sins are going to bleed out into the relationships around us. One pastor said this, Although the gospel washes away our guilt, the destructive power of sin remains, and sin is not any less destructive in our lives. Just because we call ourselves Christians doesn't mean that our sins are less destructive. They still destroy the people that it affects. Number two, hiding and concealing suffering 
the suffering, the brokenness, the ugliness of our lives, it leads to inner decay and begins to slowly sap life out of our lives. And in these times of suffering, you have to cling to the community around you. Can you imagine how lonely Bathsheba was throughout this time? Who could she turn to? Her husband was killed by the king. She can't go telling people that. You can imagine it eating away at her life each and every day. Friends, please turn to the community around you to walk with you, to share in the sufferings, and it'll, it'll, so, or it'll drain life and joy out of you. Share and seek the help of those that you can trust. Lastly, even in the midst of brokenness, God provides grace in the most unexpected ways. I can't pretend to know the sufferings that some of you have uh, gone through, some of you had to endure in your lives, and some have experienced brokenness in the past, but also maybe even the present. For Bathsheba, it was in her brokenness where she was eventually able to see and experience the grace of God. She was able to she was able to come to a point in her life where she was able to name her son Solomon, which meant peace. It comes from the word shalom. Oftentimes, when the night is the darkest, it becomes the best time to experience and see God's grace. C.S. Lewis, he was a, a writer, a Christian author, uh, who wrote the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. He said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It is in our suffering that we are reminded of the presence and the grace of God. The consequences of sin. Because of David's sin, the result was that Bathsheba became disgraced and cast out. And that leads us to our last and final point, some good news, the hope of Christmas. This story, this is a dark and broken story. Why was it mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? In fact, it's smack in the middle. We see David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It might as well have said, David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah, her son, and out of this evil, Solomon was born. In last week's message, we made clear that the genealogy was similar to the modern-day um, resume. And um, it's, like, it's like having in the middle of your resume, I was fired from my last job because I stole money and I accidentally burned the entire store down. It doesn't matter if it's true, you just don't put it on there. You wouldn't put it on there. It doesn't advance your career at all. In fact, it jeopardizes any chance of your advancement. But here it is. It's still there. Why? The reason why is because Christ wanted to show the world that it was not despite sin, evil, and brokenness, but through sin, evil, and brokenness that he brings about salvation and redemption. The story of the gospel and the purpose of this genealogy are to show that it does not matter what you've done. He's literally saying this. He's saying, look at this story. Look at how nasty this story is. 
It's, po- it's possibly the darkest and shameful story in all of the Bible, but not only was it added, but it was highlighted in this story, in this genealogy, to show that when King Jesus, when he associates himself with broken and sinful people, those who are broken become healed and restored. The Old Testament, it's full of whispers of a coming king who would be greater than any who had come before, including King David. The hope of Christmas is that he has come. He would be a king who would not rest in times of battle, but he would go straight into the heart of the enemy. Rather than use the people around him for his own pleasure, he himself would be used to advance the people around him. Rather than sparing his own life at the cost of others, he loved those around him at the cost of his own life. Jesus Christ came down from heaven, carrying in his hand the very message sealing his own death. On the cross, he was put at the front lines of battle while everyone drew back from him, his friends, his disciples, his family, and ultimately his own father. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the pinnacle of his suffering. He was saying, I have been abandoned, disgraced, and broken. And even though he was completely guiltless and sinless, it was our sin that was imputed to him while he received while we received his righteousness he lifted the disgrace off of Bathsheba and placed it upon himself where he deserved glory and honor he bestowed it upon her in hand picking the story of her brokenness and inserting it into the greatest story this world has ever known He was used and discarded for the sake of Bathsheba. And although Bathsheba had partial restoration through bearing a son in Solomon, Solomon inevitably failed as well. Yet it was not until through her lineage she bore the ultimate son in Jesus Christ when she was wholly restored. Although her life was ruined and disgraced because of King David's sin, she was once again once again made whole because King Jesus was ruined for her by associating himself with her broken story in this genealogy and ultimately on the cross. And if Jesus Christ is fully able to redeem this dark and broken story, he can absolutely redeem yours. When we come to the Lord in humility and repentance, we can witness the grip of sin loosening upon us and the power of the gospel melt away our guilt and our shame. Do you see the power and grace of Jesus? He takes the ugly, the hidden, the shameful, the broken things of our lives, our addictions, our failures, our insecurities, our disorders, our conditions, our diseases, and he brings beauty, redemption, and light out of them. Beauty through brokenness. And this cannot 
be found in any other religion, ideology, or worldview out there. Sure, the beauty through brokenness sounds really good. It should be like a Pinterest post. It sounds really inspiring and really great, but when brokenness actually happens, all the other religions, all the other self-help ideas, it's just words. But in the gospel, we know that beauty can really be found through brokenness because we see stories like David and Bathsheba, Ruth and Tamar. But ultimately, we can trust that there is beauty through brokenness because we fully see it in Jesus Christ crucified on the cross. In the brokenness of Jesus, of Jesus Christ's body, his emotions, his relationships, we see the beauty of Christ and all that he has given up for us, for you. As you go through suffering, your brokenness, the weaknesses in your life, you can be reminded that even in this, even when things are dark, even when things are gloomy, although you don't know it yet, God will bring it about for your good. Because Jesus Christ took on the ultimate suffering, brokenness, and loneliness, you are able to face any brokenness with confidence, knowing that this will not destroy you. Amazingly, and this this blew my mind, amazingly, David's prayer to the Lord in Psalm 51 to cleanse his sin was answered by the Lord through that very same sin in his future son, Jesus Christ. It was through his sin with Bathsheba that God took away not only his sin, but the sins of the entire world. This is a perfect picture of beauty through brokenness. Friends, bring your ugly, bring your broken before the cross and exchange it for the beauty and complete life in Jesus Christ. My favorite hymn, One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Wrap yourselves in the beauty of Jesus Christ. This is the story of Christmas. And I am so excited for Christmas next week. I'm so excited to finally finish off this sermon series with the birth of our King, Jesus. It's going to be an amazing celebration next week. Don't, don't miss it. Let's pray.